So then. If you awaken from this illusion. Persistence of vision. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast. The podcast that reminds you that there are such things as books. I am LBD, yo. <laughs> I am Lance Fever Myers. Yes, there are books. You should read my book. Uh, it's pretty good. It's called Fly So Much, and you can get that book by going to pov-publishing.com. There you can order, you, you can find the links to order my book. You can also order LB's book. Tell them about your book, LB. My book is poetically titled The Goddamn Fool, and if you haven't read it, then I don't know. A certain phrase comes to mind. If you have not read it, you should read it. You should go to pov-publishing.com. There you can order my book. You can order his book. You can see our entire library of past um, podcasts, including one by uh, Jody Seaborn that we did earlier on. And so, Jody, you are only our second guest. Is that right? Only our second guest to, to have appeared twice on our podcast. Okay, so I'm number two. All right. That's <laughs> my harder. Yeah. I think yeah. last time it was uh, the, the, the Trist Tristam Shandy book. Yes. Which, um, I think you started out by calling that postmodern. Today we're going to talk about well, what is often cited as, as like the height of, the, of, of modernism, right? Yeah, so that's right. I talked about the life and opinions of Tristam Shandy. Um, I think we recorded that show about a month before the pandemic shut everything down. Yeah, yeah. And if I, re if I remember right, uh, I think I described Tristram Shandy as postmodern before there was a modern to be post about. That's right. right. That's right. I remember that. I remember being very puzzled by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we'll be talking about Ulysses, and Ulysses is the modern that... Tristram Shandy would be postmodern about if Tristram Shandy were a postmodern novel, if that makes any sense. But yes, you're right, Lance. Ulysses considered the height of modernism in literature. What is modernism? Yeah, tell us. Uh, that's a damn good question. It's like postmodern. Does anyone know what those terms are? But I, th I think in general, modernism is like, um, at least in literature, it's an attempt to break with the past and to experiment with form and uh, to just try different ways of expressing uh, different different forms of artistic expression. And, you know, uh, Ulysses is famous for its uh, stream of consciousness. And that's what most people, I think, associate with modernism. If there's one technique, it's stream of consciousness. Right, right. So it's it's sort of a up until what we call the modern period, which I think is generally accepted to be uh, here. My know-it-all self is going to going to show it's, it's true colors. There, but, uh, from what I understand, anyway, modernism right started. Um, it sort of begins in the mid nineteenth century uh, as sort of a up until that point, um, writing, painting, what have you is very codified in schools that teach a certain particular approach to creation and to break from that you're shunned and nobody accepts you and nobody um, pays attention and, and you're just not good. But with the 
coming of modernism, it was it was sort of a breaking with that. It was becoming like more accepting to or accepted to sort of break the, with the mold, and then that became the thing that people look for in act, works of, of art, where it's like, what what are we doing new? What are we? How are we breaking the mold? How are we reinventing the the novel or reinventing the painting? And and um, so how how would stream of consciousness be a part of that? Well, I I how always used to be a part of that. I guess when I think of modernism, I think of primarily the stuff that started appearing after World War One. Hmm. Um, and of, of of course, you could find works before World War One that. At, at least anticipate modernism and probably one could define as modernism, but I always, at least in my mind, I associate it as stuff coming after the first world war. And that's because um, the first world war was such a break. It, it was, it was one of those true watersheds in history where what was after the war bore little resemblance to what was before the war. Sure. And um, and of course, Europe, after the war, was so devastated by the war, and people were reeling from it. So I always, I, and, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure this is accurate. A literary scholar would probably challenge me on this, but I always associate modernism with that post World War One period. And Ulysses is published in 1922. Of course, Joyce was writing it while the war was going on, but. It, it fits within with that kind of view. Um, so what was your question about stream of consciousness? <laughs> no, I just, I, I, I was, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, talking about the advent of modernism and, and look, I think you could be right. I think it could be argued that, that World War I sort of like um, really, really uh, set us into that mold or, or maybe broke the mold, I should say, uh, really sort of, uh, brought modernism to the forefront. Really, uh, you're right, things have changed quite a bit. And so how is Ulysses a part of that? Well, Ulysses, you, you see, what, what are some of the, you know, when we think of modernism, what are some of the big, at least in literature, what are some of the big modernist works? And The Wasteland mm -hmm. comes to mind, Ulysses, um, uh, works by Virginia Woolf, uh, Poetry by Ezra Pound, right? Uh, they all fit within that. So, and and what do all those works have in common? It's it, it it's like I said earlier. It's it's attempts to. I, I think it's attempts to. You know, I I wouldn't say break with the past, but see the past in a different way. And also, you're you're dealing with uh, or seeing literature in a different way. And you're also dealing with, um, you know, themes and topics that that previously were forbidden, uh, sex and getting into people's minds, that stream of consciousness. Maybe this is a, a stream of consciousness way of coming around to your <laughs> question. Yeah, demonstrating, demonstrating. Right. Well, let me, let me. But, but we go inside the heads of these characters, and like with Ulysses, uh, Leopold Bloom. I, I, it's been said this is nothing new. I'm not saying anything new here, but it's been said before that there is there a character in all of literature that the reader knows better 
than the reader knows Leopold Bloom. I mean, we are inside his thoughts uh, from the moment he arrives on the scene in Ulysses until the moment he um, curls up next to uh, Molly Bloom's bottom and kisses her bottom and goes to sleep. So, well, here's a question. I like to I like to get things as simple as possible to start at. So, what what is Ulysses? Ulysses is by James Joyce. It's a novel. When is it from? What is it about? So yeah, James Joyce, um, an Irish writer born in Dublin in what the early 1880s, I think 1882. Um, he's from a large family. Uh, his father from, I don't know a lot about Joyce, but I, I think his father kind of spent the family into poverty. Uh, Joyce um, uh, wants to become a writer. Um, he writes a series of short stories, which is published as Dubliners um, in what, 1907, 1908, somewhere around there. Uh, and then he publishes his first novel, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which is a very good, I, I, I really like that book a lot. He That's published in 1913 or 14, just as the war is breaking out. Uh, Joyce is kind of exiled from Ireland, um, self-exiled. He lives for 10 or 12 years with his wife, Nora Barnacle, which is a great name, Nora Barnacle, um, in Zurich. And then they move to Paris. And he, in 1922, tries to publish um, Ulysses, but no one will publish it. But then um, Sylvia Beach, who owns Shakespeare and Company, the bookstore, in Paris and is kind of the heart of this expatriate community in Paris in the 1920s. She publishes it in a limited edition. I don't know how many copies. Uh, and it becomes this, you know, thing among the uh, literati of the, of the era. And it's championed by Ezra Pound. It's championed by T.S. Eliot. Uh, one of its Biggest champions, and this is a bit of a surprise to some people when you say it, was Ernest Hemingway. Um, Hemingway and Joyce were friends, and Hemingway had really admired Ulysses. And um, so that, that's its publication history. It then um, famously, it's banned from being published in the United States because it's considered obscene. And then there's a famous court ruling in the early 1930s that declares that Ulysses is not pornographic. And uh, that opens the door for its publication in the United States in the 1930s. And the is book- Is that when it's uh, serialized in, the, in a magazine or was that before? Yes, it was serialized first, I believe. Right. It was That's serialized and I don't know the magazine. There was The Egoist, was that it? Uh, possibly, yeah. I think the uh, a, a, portrait, a portrait was serialized too. I mean, Joyce, he never really made a lot of money in his life, but he did have the good fortune of attracting certain patrons who sort of supported his uh, writing career. And one of those patrons, again, I, I don't know which, which novel, whether it was Portrait or Ulysses, but supported its serialization. It takes place in a single day in the city of Dublin. Yeah, June 16th, 1904, which uh, apparently is the day that Joyce met uh, Nora Barnacle, who would become his life 
partner. Mm-hmm. And starts, at eight, starts at 8 a.m. on uh, June 16th, 1904. There are three main characters, uh, Leopold Bloom, who is uh, a Jewish, uh, a Jewish um, advertising man in Dublin. Uh, there's Stephen Dedalus, who's kind of a depressed, uh, disaffected, would want to be writer, or um, who has just returned from Paris. Um, Stephen Dedalus is the main character in a portrait of the artist. He returns here in Ulysses. His mother has died some months earlier, and he's kind of making, navigating the emotions of uh, his mother dying and trying to figure out his uh, what he wants to do with himself. And then largely off the page for most of the novel is Molly Bloom. Um, Marion Tweedy is her maiden name, and that is Leopold Bloom's wife. And Molly, we see her at the beginning of the section where we were introduced to uh, Bloom, Leo, and then we see her famously at the end where we get her long, uh, her stream of consciousness, her interior monologue that closes the novel and famously closes the novel. And Stephen Daedalus is based on Joyce. And yeah, sort of autobiographical character. Uh, his genius like Joyce was. Yeah, Stephen's, they're, they're little... Snippets throughout Ulysses where we get a, a sense of Stephen's family life and it very much mirrors what I know of Joyce's life. And the erudition. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary uh, educational uh, and, and facility for history and literature and everything. It's just absolutely astonishing. Right. But, and of course, nothing about this book is presented in a straightforward way. No, and that's one of the, it's it's hard to talk about a book like Ulysses without sounding like a pretentious ass. And I, I will do my best not to sound pretentious. Bring it on. That's, I, but, I think, I, I think by, by choosing this book, you, you've already foregone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. That does remind me, though, one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this book. Besides, How did this book come up, LB, when we, when we, decided to do this how did that happen a couple books and i thought that we should do this one i think one of the reasons to do it is as a kind of unpretentious reason which is that a lot of people have heard of this book they know that it's a great important long difficult book and they feel like they would rather not read it you know they as mark twain said a classic is a book everyone wants to have read and no one wants to read I think a lot of people, and I felt this way before I read it, uh, would rather have read it than read it. And so, I felt the same way too. I, I put off reading it. For, you know, I, I'm a, an English major. You know, I have a master's degree in English literature, for what that's worth. And I, yeah, I was of course familiar with Joyce and Ulysses, but I put off reading Ulysses until about 15 years ago, and. This this has happened before with the big, huge classic novel. It happened to me with Moby Dick. Once I started reading, I was struck by how accessible it is. Yes, it is a very it is a challenging book. Um, Ulysses, you never 
are quite sure when you're moving from narration to dialogue to interior monologue. Um, but if you stick with it for a few pages and just kind of relax and forget that you're reading what many people consider the greatest novel of the 20th century, blah, 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 and just let it come to you, I, I found that I fell into its rhythms. And I'm not sure I, you know, I probably didn't pick up on all the switches from narration to interior monologue because Joyce gives you no guidance. But there are subtle differences in the writing. And once you you kind of fall into that rhythm and figure it out, it's like, yeah, okay, here's the narration leading straight into Stephen or Bloom's interior monologue, their thoughts. Um, the dialogue is pretty easy to figure out because Joyce sets it off with M dashes, but you know, you know, it is a difficult novel. I, I'm not saying it isn't, but it's not impossible to read. Which is his sequel, Finnegan's Wake, is the one that's impossible to read. Supposedly. And from what I from what I've read about Finnegan's Wake, I've never tried to read. Well, I've read a little excerpt years ago of Finnegan's Wake and just decided it wasn't. It was not going to be worth the effort. From what I've read about Finnegan's Wake is people who were very supportive of Joyce, like Ezra Pound and uh, others, were so upset by Finnegan's Wake that it kind of harmed their friendship with him. They thought he was wasting his talent. Well, here's Finnegan. something we haven't touched on uh, that seems important. Why is the book called Ulysses? Why is it named after Odysseus, the hero of the Odyssey and the Iliad? And LB, this is why you are the host, because you <laughs> think of these important points that we should be making. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, yes, explain when you say he, it's named after Odysseus, but it's Ulysses. Ulysses. No, it's, it's, it's the Latinized version, right? Of, that is of, the Latin name. That's what the Romans called Odysseus. Yes. Right. Okay. So why not Odysseus? Well, he Ulysses is easier to pronounce. <laughs> he actually grew up uh, studying Latin, Joyce, and he had a lat he had a uh, like a children's edition of the uh, of the Odyssey that was called or had used Ulysses instead of uh, uh, Odysseus. So supposedly that was part of it. But it's a very interesting. I mean, it isn't just called Ulysses, right? It is it is based on the Odyssey. Yeah, it's it's based on the Odyssey. Um, it, it's it's more closely based on the Odyssey than say, uh, uh, what what was the Coen Brothers movie? Oh brother, Oh brother, where art thou? Yeah, where art thou? Which is also you know, based on the Odyssey, but there's more of the Odyssey in Ulysses than there was in Oh Brother. Um, but yeah, it, it's based on the Odyssey, and we see. You know, the Odyssey is the story of Odysseus, his 10-year journey home from the Trojan War, uh, and all the uh, trials that he is put through by the gods and whatnot, as he finally comes home to his wife, Penelope, who has been thwarting suitors for the whole 20 years that Odysseus has been gone, uh, the 10 years of the war and then the 10-year journey home. So Ulysses... Faithful wife. Yes, his faithful wife. Molly Bloom, Molly Bloom is 
the Penelope character, but she she's not quite as faithful as Penelope. She's kind of the, yeah, she's kind of the paradigm of the unfaithful wife. Right. You know, uh, in a way. Yeah, but Molly Bloom is a great, fantastic character. Yes. She's unfaithful to Bloom, but we learn in her section, her the last chapter of the novel, her long interior monologue, she deeply loves Bloom. Exactly. Um, Bloom yeah, has not been able to uh, provide his husbandly services since they lost their child. Yeah, so let, let's talk about Bloom. Bloom is this fantastic character. Um, he and Molly have two children. They have an older daughter who's now in the novel. She's 15 or 16. And Bloom, he worries about his daughter losing her virginity and, you know, transitioning from childhood to womanhood and so on and so forth. But we learn that he and Molly had a son who died only a few weeks after the son was born. And since, you know, so this son dies in infancy, he's only a month or so old when the son dies. And since the son's death, Molly and Leo have not had sexual relations or fulfilled their sexual relations. I I, think Bloom is, he has some interesting uh, sexual proclivities that we learn about throughout the novel, but yeah, he and he and Molly are estranged sexually, and Molly is a uh, a singer. A, um, what kind of singer would you describe her, Lance and Albie? I would say she was a popular singer. She was a she's what you what we'd have instead of a rock star in those days. Uh, well, like a music hall singer. Yeah, music hall, precisely. <laughs> yep. So she's, she's a singer, and she's preparing for a series of concerts uh, or a, a concert being put on by a man named uh, Boy, Boylan. I'm not getting help, help me with his name. Blaze Boylan. Blaze Boylan, yes. Boylan. And she is on the day, on this day, June 16th, 1904, while Bloom is roaming Dublin, um, Molly is preparing for Blaze Boylan to come over that afternoon. And for them, I what's that? Yes, it's Blaze's. Yes, to, uh, I think, consummate their, their flirtation or their affair. I don't, I don't believe they have consummated their affair before this day. So it's called Ulysses, um, based on the Odyssey, because Bloom is wandering the city of Dublin. He leaves, he, he gets up, we, we meet him, he has his breakfast, he loves organs. So <laughs> for breakfast, he fries up a, a kidney. He goes to the butcher and buys a kidney. And he fries it up, and that's his breakfast. Then he leaves, and we just follow him on his adventures around Dublin as he, throughout the day, winds his way back to his home um, at night. And along the way, um, we learn all kinds of things about him. He, he, he goes to a funeral. Uh, there's an associate who has died, so he goes to this associate's funeral. He goes by a newspaper office to... Um, 
uh, try to get one of his advertisements or advertisements in the uh, the paper. Uh, one of my favorite chapter, the chapter where he is looking for lunch and he walks into this uh, restaurant and he's just so turned off by everyone in there just shoveling this, you know, meat and all kinds of crap into their mouth and it turns him off. So he ends up going to a pub for lunch. Um, he goes to the library to uh, get a copy of a, an ad that he needs. Uh, he encounters Stephen uh, along the way. He, um, he goes along the Strand where he sees one of uh, a great character named Gertie uh, McDowell. And in one of the you know, sections of the novel that got it declared obscene, he masturbates while watching Gertie. Um, he goes to a uh, brothel with Stephen and a bunch of medical students where he rescues uh, Stephen from, Stephen by this point has gotten deeply drunk and uh, Bloom- Spending all his money. Spending all of his money. So Bloom saves Stephen and uh, brings him, and then uh, they make it home to uh, Bloom's house and they drink cocoa and Stephen sobers up and goes on his way. And then Bloom gets in bed with Molly and that's the end of his day. And then we have Molly's interior monologue. So that's that's the plot. And all of this is somewhat loosely, but definitely directly tied to the Odyssey again. Right. Each chapter has some parallel to the Odyssey. So I mentioned uh, the chapter, again, it's one of my favorite chapters. I, I should say that each of the three characters, Stephen, Bloom, and Molly, they get a they get their own interior monologue. There's one, there's at least one chapter dedicated to their interior monologue. For Stephen, it's like the chapter three. Um, the first three chapters of the book serve as sort of a prologue to the the day. Yes, chapter the, four, the, the first three books are the, are about right. Telemachus, the son of Odysseus. Right. The first three books. Stephen is Telemachus, Odysseus' son. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bloom, of course, is Odysseus, and Molly is Penelope. So there's a little prologue. The first three chapters serve as sort of a prologue, and then chapter four, we reset. We go back to eight o'clock. We meet Bloom. And then the final three chapters um, are, are the winding up. Bloom arrives at Ithaca, you know, his home, which serves as Ithaca. And um, uh, then we get Penelope's... Um, interior monologue but yeah each chapter uh like the funeral um of Diggum, one of um bloom's associates serves as hades as a stand-in for hades as he goes through this uh one of my favorite chapters one where it, it's bloom's interior monologue where he's thinking about food and lunch and that is the uh, oh gosh what is it the uh lestragonians that's a chapter in the Odyssey about uh, the cannibals. Um, and the... Cody, can I, can I ask, what, what do you think the, the piece gains, what do you think the novel gains from, from making this sort of illusion? Um, other than, you know, you say, uh, don't want to be pretentious and you can enjoy it without, you know, thinking about it in terms of it, its place in history. But I'm wondering, you know, 
it, it does come across as sort of pretentious to talk about it in, in such a way, but does it artistically uh, enrich the novel, do you think? I mean, when we're reading it, does it, does it actually bring anything to the experience? Yeah, if you've read The Odyssey, it does. Uh, but Joyce, there, there are so many layers to Ulysses that I don't, when I first read this about 15 years ago, I, I bought a, an annotated um, copy, very just detailed annotations. And so I, I would read the first chapter, then I would go through this this list of annotations. Probably the only way to do it. <laughs> and then I read the second chapter and I and I stopped. It was like, no, I, I'm never going to finish this book if after each chapter I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's what. And just I, I put that annotated thing aside and I just started reading it and um, you know there's a reason why literary some some literary scholars they have built entire careers off studying Ulysses right you can you can just go through layer after layer after layer I mean Joyce was incredibly sounds very trite but incredibly well read you know he knew all the work, classical works and all the works through literature and so there there are all these illusions but i just i don't worry about that it's like i I will catch the ones i catch and if i don't catch them it it's not going to uh, harm my enjoyment of the book well that's what i was going to ask you think james joyce is incredibly well read what about those of us who are not incredibly well read well i think you can still enjoy it for what it is and um you know one of the biggest surprises when i first read it um was how funny it is it's a very comic novel um and then beyond that uh that first impression of oh my god this is really funny there's some really funny scenes in here is that leo uh, leopold bloom is such a human i mean he he is a real person as real as a as a literary creation can be we we are in his head, and he he is us. You know, we are connect connected with the way he thinks, and and he's a very um, you know he's a very humane person. He's very kind. He he's very charitable. He goes out of his way throughout the novel to help people. Uh, at one point, he helps a blind man cross the street. He goes and visits a woman. Um, What's her name? Perf- Perfoy, uh, Mina, Mina Perfoy, who's a woman who's been like three days in labor. He goes by the hospital to pay her a visit to kind of comfort her as best he can. Um, and so he's just a very giving and charitable person. But at the same time, he has these, as we're in his head, we realize he has these kind of, you know, little odd proclivities that uh, some people may think of as perversions, but um, well, they just make them real. To get back to what Lance was saying about the, the purpose of the Ulysses structure, the, the Odyssey, I think that what you're saying about Bloom is really central to that because, as you mentioned earlier, Jody, the, the Odyssey is the story of an incredibly great hero who is absolutely as he demonstrates at the end with, with his defeat of the suitors, he, he is superhuman, literally a superhuman individual who uh, is, is 
absolutely magnificent in every respect. And, and yet it's very cold. It's very willing to lie to people, trick them, to do whatever, whatever it takes to kill people in order to survive. And who ultimately is this paradigm of, of the husband because he comes home to his wife who has uh, resisted uh, temptations and pressures that almost any woman would have succumbed to, basically being faithful to a man that she had no reason to believe was still alive. Uh, in the face of having all these wonderful suitors. So so then you have this contrast with this comic figure of a guy we're going to call Odysseus or Ulysses, who is an everyday uh, guy in an everyday town, a modern town, who is living this very ordinary life. His adventures are things like going and having someone throwing a dinner roll at him and missing, you know, and, uh, and, and his faithful wife is the one who is having an affair behind his back and uh and yet it's so it sounds like he's he's making a point about modernity as being sort of inferior to this classical world you know or 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 revealing you know appearing absurd and tawdry and ordinary compared to the classical world of literature and yet, when you look at Leopold Bloom, he's actually much more admirable than Ulysses. He's not a liar. He doesn't kill people. He's deeply humane. He's deeply loving. And he's the one who, even though Daedalus is based on Joyce, Bloom is the one whose humane outlook colors the entire story. You know, James Joyce does not condemn Molly Bloom for cheating on her husband. He doesn't no, not at all anyone in this book for anything. He loves his characters. He loves the city of Dublin. He loves everything in his book. And he is presenting a benevolent view of the world that, however, he's got this, this cutting sense of humor and so forth, but we're talking about a, 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 a kind of charity, as you said, that is absolutely dazzling, you know, and, and, uh, and really probably makes a stronger impression even than his genius as a writer. You're right. And you make a, a, a great point there. Joyce um, loves M Molly as a character as much as he loves Bloom. And we see Molly through Bloom's eyes through most of the and Bloom, Yeah. And I said that Molly was doing this behind Bloom's back, but that was, that was sort of a misstatement. Bloom knows the affair is going on. And oh, Bloom knows. He right. Doesn't care. He doesn't care. But then in the Molly in the Molly chapter, which I, I should say the Molly the the final chapter, the Molly's interior monologue, her stream of consciousness is you know I find it kind of difficult to read because it's these long I mean long yeah there's like three sentences I I think there I think it goes on I don't know how many pages it goes on but I think there are eight sentences yeah across across fifty pages. Something like that, right? But we see, we see the day's events then through Molly's eyes, and we come to realize, although Bloom is never really blaming Molly for her anticipated infidelity, um, he actually leaves the house so that she can do it. Right. He he knows it's about to happen. He knows it's it's on its way. Um, but when we see events through Molly's eyes in that last chapter, we realize that, you know, Bloom bears some responsibility for 
the marriage reaching that point. And um, yeah, they're both fantastic characters. Bloom, we should say, I mean, I mentioned that Bloom is Jewish and that's important. Bloom is an outsider. He, he never really feels part of the world around him and the world around him excludes him at times. There's a scene where uh, some of his business associates are talking about going to the pub for a drink after Dignam's funeral, and they they don't really invite Bloom. Yeah. And um, Stephen's boss, the headmaster of the school where Stephen teaches, is a raging anti-Semite. Yeah. Um, so that is the yeah, world. There's a lot of anti-Semitism, both casual and quite... Uh, sort of formal and academic uh, mm -hmm. form of the instructor at the school. Uh, it's interesting to talk about his Jewishness also because it reminds me, we're talking about a book that is an analog for a classical Western tradition of the Greeks. But of course, famously, the Western civilization had two birthplaces, right? It had the the Greeks, but it also had Jerusalem. It had Judaism and Christianity. And so in, a, in that sense, I wonder if he was including uh, that, that, if that was one of the motivations for having a Jewish main character. It Jewish might be. And, and then there's, as it's mentioned a uh, few times throughout the book, the concept of the wandering Jew. Yeah, um, that's true. But, you know, I don't pretend to fully understand everything about this novel. It is, uh, as we said, it is so rich with so many layers that one could read this, just spend the rest of your life reading nothing but Ulysses and still, I think with each reading, get something new out of it. Not just some little nugget you didn't notice before, but some some new, newly profound insight out of it. Yes, we learn to live by reading this book. Well, I don't know about you guys. Uh, I'm, I'm I've been looking out the window here. And <laughs> clouds are <laughs> clouds are trying to roll in, uh, which I think may be signaling the approach of our lightning round. Oh no! <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in the lightning rod, uh, sitting on the lightning rod in that hot seat. <laughs> Well, and, and here's another um, interesting uh, thing about this particular podcast, right, is the, the fact that it's our second time to have a guest on for a second time. Usually our battery of questions is all, always the same, um, but since you've already answered, I think, our first round, um, we're going to have to present you with a whole new round. Okay. Questions. <laughs> so, um, so here we go. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. All right. So Jody has, I'm, I'm sorry to say Jody has not, well, maybe I'm not sorry to say, Jody has not heard these questions before. This is a true, true lightning round. Um, so here we go. Um, tell us the last book that you read. The last book that I read, funnily enough, was a book called Circe. Ah, it's a good book. Mm -hmm. Okay, Circe, by who? Uh, help me, LB. Uh, the author's name escapes me. Uh, it escapes me too, even though I've read two books by her. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. If, 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 I'll if, look it up while you proceed. Oh, there you, you go. Know, 
One one connection I had with Bloom is Bloom uh, a couple of times struggles to remember something and um, Madeline Miller. Yes. Okay. Re- repeat repeat that, Albie. Oh, repeat. sorry, Madeline Miller. Yeah, Madeline Miller, American author, I believe. So Circe, and there's a Circe chapter in um, Ulysses was a. I don't know. Well, she she wasn't a nymph. Um, she was a goddess. Okay. Were goddesses, and she was a goddess. So in the Odyssey, she changes. She was a witch, uh, she was a witch but she, how does she become? So was the nymph. Seriously. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. She. she but they were both goddesses. Yeah. She, and and in the Odyssey, she um, Odysseus and his men wind up on her island, and she changes Odysseus's men into into pigs, into swine. Right. And so Circe, this novel is told from her perspective ah, wonderful okay um name it tell us a book that you wish that you had written oh my gosh uh uh yeah you know there's there's a thomas hardy book that called the return of the native that uh hits on themes that uh if i were to try to write a novel uh, some of those themes would probably appear in 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 my book. So I'll say uh, the return of a native. Okay, fantastic. Um, how's an author you wish that you could have dinner with? Oh, um, you know, would would I want to have dinner with Joyce? I don't know, Joyce. Uh, I think I think that would be kind of a tough conversation. <laughs> Surely the man must have very very deep and layered conversation. <laughs> yeah. So I will uh I'll go with uh someone uh let let's see. How about uh well how about Lawrence Stern? We talked about uh Tristram Shandy, you know, that was my first yes. book. Yes. I think Lawrence Stern would be a delight to have uh, dinner with. Great answer. Okay. Uh, and this one, I, I think this one was contributed by LB for our last returning guest. Uh, tell us, uh, um, let's see, a book you wish you were a character in, which character would you be? Uh, well, just because it, it's fresh on my mind, I wish I was in Ulysses. Kind oh, of yeah? Okay. Trailing behind uh, Bloom and just sort of observing him from a distance. Wow, oh, interesting. Okay, like a virtual reality Ulysses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, going in uh, like the pub where he has a cheese sandwich, you know, while he's in there, it's, just follow him in and sidle up uh, well, to the bar on the, on the other side and just watch and observe. The day that that the day of the year that Ulysses takes place in is called Bloomsday, mm-hmm. and people go to Dublin to celebrate Bloomsday by tracing out Leopold Bloom's route through the city. Mm-hmm. So it's funny you mentioned this the idea of being a virtual or invisible character following him because people really try to do that. And another thing we didn't mention that I think is really fascinating. I'm sorry to interrupt the lightning round, but I just think <laughs> it's so cool. Joyce famously said that you, if the city of Dublin were destroyed, you would mm-hmm. be able to rebuild it based on this book because the level of detail is so exact and so comprehensive. And the thing that's really cool about that is that he had long since left the city. He was mm-hmm. living, as, as Jody said, in Europe, 
when he wrote this. So you can, that's just another instance of the man's incredible mental capacity. He, he was able to provide this exact portrait down to the finest detail of a city that he hadn't lived in in over a decade. Right. He left Dublin in 1903, 04, 05, somewhere in that period to go teach in Zurich. He lived in Zurich for roughly a dozen years. Then he moves to Paris where he lives for, well, until I, I, I guess more or less the outbreak of the war, of the Second World War. Yeah. And then he moves back to Zurich and it's in Zurich where he dies. I don't, if he went back to Dublin during that period, it's just for brief visits. Yeah. Well, our one last uh, question to you, Jody, is uh, do you have a favorite quote? And if so, could you share it with us? Well, how about a, uh, my favorite quote or one of my favorite quotes from Ulysses? Yes, wonderful. It occurs in the second chapter uh, where Stephen is having a conversation with the headmaster, uh, Mr. Deasy. And uh, Mr. Deasy has just made the first of what will be several anti-Semitic remarks. And uh, Stephen, you know, in his uh, being being uh, an inferior to his headmaster, you know, he, he sort of pushes back against Mr. Deasy as best he can. And then they end up talking about history, and Stephen delivers this wonderful quote about history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. Beautiful. Wonderful. Probably the most famous quotation. Probably, probably the most famous quote from Ulysses. History is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. Give you the chills when you, when you hear that quote. Well, you know, that, that, that kind of echoes the whole idea that we began with as far as the, the book being a modernist piece and trying to divorce itself from the traditions of the past in, in, that, in that way, I suppose. Yes, getting through World War I. Right, right. Well, thank um, you, Jody. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna, you know, I mentioned this chapter where, um, the, the cannibal chapter, um, hmm. what, what's it, the Listergonians. Um, and there's a scene, there's another very moving scene in there where Bloom is having his lunch and he's thinking about when he and Molly consummated their relationship or when he proposed to Molly. And he says, me, me then, that was me. And then he, very, he says, not me now. And it's just so moving and um, it's sad. I mean, it, it, sad's not the right word. It's just a very moving little, tiny little moment in this long book. Me, not me now. Mm. And um, um, I, I just, I, I love that little moment in the book. Thank you so much, Jody, for, for discussing this with us. Uh, yeah, it's been my pleasure. And if I'm fortunate enough to be invited back for a third time, let's pick a short book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Maybe maybe The Old Man in the Sea or something like that. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. Well, fantastic. Um, again, we are pov-publishing.com. 
um, please go to our website. You can um, see Jody's last uh, podcast, or I think you can listen to Jody's last podcast. Back, back then, we weren't doing this new video thing. But uh, um, the Rent the Bar podcast library is up there along with selections of poetry and essays by world-class writers, comics, uh, linked to uh, fantastic books like my book, Why So Much, like LB's book, The Goddamn Fool. We love you. Thanks for tuning in. LB, you have any parting words for the, for the, for the gang? Happy Blooms Day, everybody. Happy Blooms Day. We love you. Thank you, Jody. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, guys.